there. Another discast. This time, I've actually managed to make the trip with, with Chris all the way up to Provincetown. And yesterday, we, last night, we got here. So I'm a little zoned out a little bit. And the, the transition is always, I don't know, it's just kind of weird. You find out stuff that's gone wrong over the winter and things have rotten and the things have fallen down and grass is everywhere and the ivy is not going, all that stuff. Um, but I'm thrilled to be here and it's great to be back with you guys. And we have a really special guest this week, as, I, as I'm sure you will all appreciate, Ben Smith. Chris, you didn't get me the bio of Ben Smith. <laughs> We've been traveling. I just don't want to say it wrong. That's all. I'll just read it off the back of the fucking book. <laughs> Sorry, I normally have. Here we are. I'll just read this. It's always, always more honest than the picture. You look very stirring and handsome in the picture, a little rugged. That's what I'm in. That's uh, what just I'm great. in. I, 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 you look great. Oh, you should look funny. I was going to say the bio, will be more, the bio will be more accurate. But anyway, go ahead. <laughs> so Ben Smith is the editor-in-chief of Semaphore, a new global news company. And he's the former media columnist for the New York Times, where everyone read his column every week. And he was the founding editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News. And before that, he was among the first reporters to adapt the tools of the internet to political journalism for The Observer in New York, The New York Daily News, and Politico. He lives in Brooklyn with his wife and three kids. And I really enjoyed this book, Ben. It was fun. It was a little weird. It's like, it was like a little like watching that movie, Shattered Glass, because you, you're watching, I was watching a kind of, reading a kind of history that I was part of, but I'm off stage, but I can, but I was there and I could feel the stuff. So it was really kind of intimate in a way, although I didn't know a lot of them and I was weir weirdly distant because I was in Washington. But, uh, but if you haven't bought it or read it, Traffic by Ben Smith is the book, Genius, Rivalry and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben, where did you grow up? I grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And what did your folks do? And my dad was a lawyer, now, then a judge, now a lawyer again. And my mom's a, a teacher and writer. And when were you first kind of aware you were fascinated by politics, political writing, political journalism? Because this, this, I mean, you, you had this bug early. Yeah, I got an internship one summer at the Jewish Forward, the, the weekly, at that point, neoconservative. It had been revived from being a socialist newspaper to a neoconservative one, but I, and I just sort of happened into the covering a state Senate race in the Upper West Side of Manhattan, but Eric, Eric Schneiderman's first race and just loved it. I don't know, for all the sort of reasons that politics is terrible and addictive, these very smart, ambitious people, you know, competing intensely and, you know, finding real differences among themselves and leaking damaging information. I believe one of the candidates was, there was a dispute over whether he was really Jewish. Someone dug up his <laughs> baptismal certificate. I mean, it was, it was delightful. That is the story you want in the forward. You, is he actually oh, yeah. a Jew? That is the oppo that goes to the Jewish forward. It's the baptismal certificate. We used to get, like, I remember there was a guy who used to write for the forward, because Marty, when I was at the New Republic, this is way back when, back in the 90s, when the forward was, but we'd always be a little on edge if Marty had said, as someone from the forward, he wanted had a piece he wanted to look at. And there was one guy who we actually started call I can't, I probably I shouldn't say this, but we used to call him I.L., because a lot of them were called I.L. Moskowitz of blah, blah, blah. And this was I.L. 
we couldn't pronounce that, so we call it Matsubo. I am Matsubo. Is this all anti-Semitic? No, it isn't. We were the New Republic. We were laughing at all this stuff. It was fun. But yeah, those, those, one thing I first recognized as a complete stranger all this is how so much of high-end American literary political journalism was so Jewish in so many ways. And for that, and had so many of those virtues, the, the, the incredible tenacity, the, the, the attention to detail, the learnedness, and the ability and willingness to go at it and have fun with it. In some ways, that was, in America, that was a more recognizable culture to me, a subculture to me, coming from the English political system than, than, than the wasps or, or other subcultures, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's a subculture of Jews in a way, but certainly the forward. And one of the things that I loved about the forward and that is when I've worked with reporters who are obsessed with their own kind of ethnic groups and cover them, that comes sometimes naturally, sometimes less naturally, was the ferocity with which it covered Jewish institutions and just drove them insane. And I remember, you know, we would pull the 990s of sleepy Jewish charities and write about them <laughs> and, the, and rank, and it just... It was, I mean, and I guess I sort of, you know, that was my first journalism job. I thought that was normal. And it, it does, it actually is, it was probably good training for various other kinds of reporting where you're both of the community and also a gadfly. Yeah. Tell me about it. Yes, that's, 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 and there were some in the gay world, also obsessive gays who were obsessed with, with, with pointing out the hypocrisies and, and fallacies of every, I mean, it's true, I think, of every subculture, but there's a, a panache and a style and a brilliance to which American Jews sometimes do that, that is scarcely, and a journalistic market too. What was the newsroom in the journal, in the forward like? It was, you know, it was, it was split. It was a, two sides of the same floor in the Workman's Circle building in Midtown. It was a great socialist organization. And, the, and one side was a bunch of ambitious Ivy League-ish kids. Where, you know, I think all sorts, I think Jeffrey Goldberg was there for a time, Jonathan Mahler, lots of People whose bylines people know passed through Gazette was very ambitious and had great kind of taste in reporters. And then on the other side was the Yiddish forward, which was the real historical forward, which was full of, which was very divided because, the, because Yiddish itself had been very divided between the sort of old line, left leaning New Yorkers who had started the forward. There's a huge paper, it was, you know, it just built this tower in Seward Park. It had 300,000 readers. It was a real powerhouse. But they were, you know, literally dying by the, you know, 1990s. Very little of that tradition was left. And so the remaining Yiddish speakers were on one hand ultra-Orthodox Jews who were at war and had historically perennially at war with the secularists who ran the forward. And then former Soviet Yiddishists who were secular, but maybe too secular for the, you know, for the anti-communist socialists who ran the forward. And, and you know, they had maybe fled the Soviet Union, but were they really purely anti-communist enough? And in fact, Yiddish orthog Stalin had changed the orthography of a number of languages to modernize and simplify it. And Yiddish, and, and there was a Soviet Yiddish orthography that was opposed, hostile to. So you, you, you see where this is going. Yes. It was, there was a lot to argue about. The idea that magazines or newspapers were places where people fought among themselves passionately over editorial positions, over politics. That was what I was introduced to at the New Republic, certainly in the 80s and 90s. And, and that, I, I always feel, that's a hugely healthy way to, to be as long as the institution doesn't tear itself apart. 
And I get that. I get that. Yeah, no, you, I, totally too. You, have, you, you love that kind of stuff. You, 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 you have no worry about controversy or about debate or about, and you've had to you wrestle know. with decisions yourself in your own, in your own capacities, professional capacities over the years. You've had yeah, suppose when you're editor in chief, it's, oh, totally. And I suppose when you're editor in chief, you know, you do get to make the final decision, but no, I, I do think open that kind of openness to disagreement. And actually, I think it's the, to my current, you know, my current management philosophy sort of is that you've got to find ways to express those disagreements in the product itself or else they kind of bleed out in less healthy ways. Yes, absolutely. That's why we would run. I mean, I remember there was the pieces by one person one week and another rebuttal the next week and another rebuttal the net following week. You know, symposium ha happened all the time because no one could agree. Yeah, I love that context. So from, from the forward, you went to where? You know, back to college. Seth, the, Seth Lipsy, the editor chief, tried to get me to drop out of Yale and almost succeeded. But then I went back to school, finished up, went to, got a summer fellowship at the Indianapolis Star where I covered cops, which was a total joy. And then went, and then it was a stringer in Eastern Europe for a couple of years. And then came back, came back after 9-11 to work for the New York Sun, which Seth, who had founded the forward, also founded a conservative New York broadsheet. Yeah, I remember that that very well. And he was, a, he was a fascinating and brilliant and talented person, Seth Lipsky. Tell us a little bit about him. You know, him. he was a great editor. He's a, he is a great, he continues to be the editor of the New York Sun. He's a, I mean, I disagree with him substantively on a lot of things. He is, for instance, a very devoted gold bug. He was a great editor. Like he loved, I mean, because partly, I mean, and again, you and I actually, I think sometimes when we disagree, we, I really, we come from different parts of journalism. I like reporting and scoops and that is my thing. And I don't really have a lot of ideas in my head. And Seth like loved scoops and, and got that like, you know, news, it's called news. You got to have news in it. And that was sort of something that's something, you know, probably for some personality flawed reason I also love. But he also sort of just deeply understood that the job of an editor is to stand by his reporters when they get into trouble which they're going to do if they do good work. And I mean, which, you know, would happen when I was an intern annoying people because I was incompetent. And also when I published the dossier, I just skip ahead and was, you know, taking an enormous amount of heat, particularly at that moment from the right. Seth calls me up and says, I want to write an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal defending you. Talk to me about this. I mean, he was, and I, I have certainly taken that to heart, that anybody who ever works for me as a reporter, I feel some obligation to, to stand behind them. Yeah, that was... Definitely a value that I felt very strongly too. That, that when you, when you, especially when you're dealing with angry sources or hostile outside parties, yeah, if you've made a mistake, you need to cop to it quickly and take responsibility for it. But hanging out your own reporters to dry is a really shitty thing to do, and it's it's ultimately your responsibility as the editor. Yeah, so you're um, right. Exactly, you published it. Yeah, that has obviously disappeared over the years that ethic but but in some ways because the avenues and and platforms for talking about these things have multiplied exponentially and so the ability to to do such a thing and to stand out is is, is disappeared but so that's the story that we've lived through really that that the, the, these things that we used to work for which were relatively discreet and were relatively elite because inevitably not everybody could could write or, or, or publish. They were the rich people had owned magazines and newspapers or some as as either as philanthropic interests or as commercial interests or some weird variety mixture of the two. And there was a discrete amount. And then suddenly this 
democ democratizing wave, which is, I think, what it really was, came along. And you, the story you've just given of your career is one of a classic newspaper reporter editor story. You've, you've done Copbeat, you've done local politics, you've been abroad, you've come back. So you were, you were, you were, and then you presented with an entirely new environment in the media in which you find yourself looking at blogs, exchanging emails, having text, those kind of things that begin to eat at the margins of what, of the media that we knew. When did that? When was that? Yeah, first, first, when did you first get the bug about that? When you were like, "I don't the the, the blogosphere or the the internet is a place where I'm going to get ideas, or where I'm going to hear things that are new. Maybe that's where I'm going to find the breaking news for the first time, not the real world, but on the internet." I mean, I think I, I really first, really as a consumer, got totally hooked on this after nine eleven, and when when you were so you just wanted information and it was mm. so scarce. And I remember I would I would I was based in Riga, Latvia. And there was a there was a internet cafe on like the second floor on if it was Junior Yella, and I would go, and I would pay my two lats an hour, which was like four dollars, which felt like a lot, and just hit refresh on your blog and Josh Marshall's blog and the Drudge Report and the handful of other things that might refresh, you know, might update once in a while, just to try to figure out what the hell is going on, because you because in the morning or the U.S. morning, you just wake up and read everything, and then be done and right. the next day basically. I know. I remember that um, very well. Yeah, and, I, no, I, and I can remember when I was able to break that myself. You know, it was this sudden sense uh, because there was a point at which, and I remember this very distinctly, when we first put up the dish, it, it, was, it was basically a web page for my articles. And so each week when I would write a new article, I'd put a new article up there. And I used to get a friend to do it because I was useless technologically. i get muddled up and fuck it up. And then he said at one point, and this is the moment I remember, he said, look, I'm tired of doing this for you. There's this new platform called Blogger. Why don't you bloody well do it yourself? And at that time, I would read the papers late at night, and then I would write some mean thing about Maureen Dowd, a column, and I would put it up at like 1 a.m. So people would get, people could read it before they even read a column. That was just as a sheer, puerile, adolescent, I broke the rules, was extraordinarily fun to me as a journalist, as a writer. I could, I could suddenly do what I'd always done, but play with the timing of it and aim it directly at various people. It was, it was a huge, as soon as I started using Blogger, I realized, blow me, I, this is extraordinary. I can do anything yeah, here. It was incredible. It's amazing to the extent to which the early internet was all commentary on the New York Times. Yes. Like I have this whole theory about Thomas Friedman. Yes. Who that I think he can't ever really be on the internet because the whole structure of online discourse is about attacking Thomas Friedman. And so there's sort of no way for him to be in that. Like he's, he's Shakespeare. You know what I mean? So that it, you know, of takes. And so all takes are fundamentally about Thomas Friedman. Anyway, another podcast. The, but no, but I think the thing that you, I do think two things. One, Right. Like I can't, so I was, I mean, it's funny, you know, whenever you get to a scene, you think of yourself as a latecomer and if only you'd been there last year. And I certainly thought that you and Josh Marshall and Matt Drudge and Mickey Cows and, you know, a handful of others, maybe Fire Dog Lake, I think was early, like, you know, Jan Hampshire sort of were, you know, had gotten to this party way before me because by the time I, it's 2004 and at the national election. And so I was at the New York Observer, I was reading all these blogs. But I was covering local politics, trying to cover national politics very hard for a New York Weekly. 
And then there was a mayoral election coming up the next year and there was nothing on the internet. And I also had that, oh my God, I can just like publish press releases even that, that no one will have seen them all day. It's this kind of ridiculous arbitrage. And I can talk directly to my sources and feel like I'm kind of beating the system. It's ridiculously easy actually to sort of speak directly to people and have these online conversations about, yeah, about, you know, Mike Bloomberg, Freddie Ferrer, whatever the hell else was going on in New York, Chuck Schumer, in this way that was very, you know, just totally immediate, totally fun. I do think there's something like that most, a lot of the journalists like you and me, certainly, who were early in these different spaces kind of had a screw loose. Like there's, you know, like the kinds of, because the, the traditional hallowed path for people of your general, you know, we're mostly close to the same age, was to try to get a job at the New York Times or Time Magazine and climb the greasy pole and work your way up. And I think a lot of really good journalists my age and a little older just got totally screwed because they did that, got about halfway up the greasy pole and the whole thing collapsed on them. And suddenly, you know, you're, you're, you're far enough along in building these skills of working the system that that was your skill set. And then the system went away. And people who, for whatever reason, had some slightly like self-defeating and you know, wanting to be a big fish in a small pond rather than a small fish in a big pond or, you know, weird, perverse desire to kind of mess, the, mess around on the internet and screw up the system, suddenly found that the system that we were embedded in became the system. Yes. And the old print publications became, you know, really shaky relics and the whole thing flipped. Like, I mean, it's very strange. I, and I think that people with at least certainly my professional instincts would be, would normally be working at Mel Weekly basically. Like I, I was, I sort of had some unearned sense of myself as an outsider who wanted to be outside the thing. And then the polarity just switched on me right. in a way that I still find kind of puzzling. Yes. I, but I, the, I the other thing about that moment of Go on. sort of of discovery was I was very early to figure, I think there was something called site meter and you could embed a little bit of code and it was just fascinating to see who was reading you, what they were reading, you know, maybe a hundred people would read this item and you'd see that they were passing it around. And, oh my gosh, like I can tell that like the Queens Republicans are all emailing this to each other. Cause I mean, the numbers were so small. It was like, you literally often knew who the people were yeah. or could guess at least because New, because New York was a small world, but also I would occasionally some important blogger who I've read obsessively, you and Josh Marshall being the main ones would link me. And I would get a sense of like, oh, there's this larger world of people online who, if I can make New York politics interesting to them via their appointed messenger, you or Josh Marshall, I can get at least a lot of them. And so I would, so as a small, as sort of a second down the food chain blogger like me, you would sort of adopt the interests of people like you. And the one I remember specifically being so pleased that you were obsessed with marriage, as was I which was so clearly becoming this story. I mean, I wasn't as obsessed as you or sort of as formed as you, obviously, but it was just so clearly the real story. And I probably cut sort of, you know, red-pilled by you on it. But so I remember getting wind that the boss of Brooklyn, this old-time Democrat named Vito Lopez, kind of, oh, yeah, he was still getting real. He was Spanish, of Spanish descent, but the neighbor had become Dominican. He'd sort of persuaded people he was Dominican or the way of local politics was still getting elected. And that he had that faced some very minor, probably corrupt trade-off around some district leader fight and had told the gay district leader from Park Slope, all right, if you vote for me and this, whatever this stupid thing is, I'll support gay marriage, whatever. It's just another thing you can trade in the horse trading of urban politics. And I thought like, wow, that actually feels different. Like that's not something his predecessor would have felt like 
is just another thing in the way of all issues because they don't care about issues that can be traded. And so I wrote that up and you linked it. And I thought, oh, I've like tapped into the vein. <laughs> yeah, there was for the, I mean, for me, having worked as an editor and a writer in magazines, first of all, I didn't have to worry about the owner, the publisher. I, I, the, that worry disappeared. Then I didn't have to worry about space, line editing, because again, one forgets that, that about 30% of your time as an editor in print media was fitting things and, and getting things the right length, essentially. And, 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 the, and then there was the creation of the mix for a magazine, which was another kind of editorial decision. And suddenly all those, all those pressures and constraints disappeared. That, I, that the mix happened whether you liked it or not, and you had the world to pick from in terms of what you linked to as opposed to commissioning at five different pieces from different people that have a, an interesting sort of mosaic of a magazine each week, which is sort of what I tried to do. So, so all these liberatory things. And then, as I've said, the, when, I, when, when the emails that came back were the other thing, the interactivity of it was extraordinary. So for a writer, you know, you would write a piece, people would hate it, and then two weeks later, there would be a letter to the editor would appear and blah, 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 blah. I remember writing something and within about five minutes getting an email from one from North Dakota and one from New Zealand within the space of like a couple of minutes. That blew my mind. That was suddenly, wow, this is just not, this is, this is, a, this is to the world. And that's really why I came up with that window view idea because I just wanted to get a sense of the, first of all, the global ubiquity of this, it's like the instantaneous of it. And the fact that it was also both global and ubiquitous and kind of intimate at the same time, the very strange experience that I used to call it mass intimacy. And then as you, as you wrote and wrote, you developed this bond with these people and that bond developed through events in time, because then you're following people as they go along. So, the next experience for me, really, in doing all that and just blogging, that was first of all, Jesus, I can do this any hour of the day or not. I don't have to do it once a day. That was that was an early thing, so I can do it round the clock. And then you figure out slowly, if I do it every hour, they come back, and you look at your numbers, and suddenly, woo, there's this people. And then you, then this is not this is done with nothing but my own intuition. There's no, I'm not, I don't have any data really telling me how to do viral shit. But so eventually, I think over the years of the dish until it got into the 20 teens, when we, when I built the team out following this instinct to keep producing, because people would keep coming back, we were putting something on every 20 minutes. And we realized that we had in some ways become, we were, so was it Twitter before Twitter. And as much as we were fulfilling the need that you were talking about, I want to know what's happened this, in the last two hours. I want to know. What's happened in the last four hours? I want to know before the newspapers had fully gone twenty four seven. And that was exciting yeah, as well. And so and so addicting. I mean, I had I was when I was at Politico in 07 and 08 covering the Obama campaign. You know, the president's campaign, but really it was Obama was the story, and people were obsessed with him and were hitting refresh. And I remember once I, you know, I like went went out for you know left had to go some some family thing at four p.m. and started people started emailing me asking if I was dead. I mean, it was like. Yeah. And, and it's, on one hand, it's really, you know, it's nice to be needed, right? I mean, it's yes. a really basically positive, addictive feeling, but also, I mean, totally overwhelming. Yeah. It, and it, unhealthy. 
very unhealthy. And we were discovering, we were actually experiencing what places like Twitter learned to exploit and Facebook learned to exploit. We were, we were just intuitively providing dopamine hits. And they were also helping us feel dopamine hits. And yeah. then we were, then we had positive reinforcement all the time because the more we did this, the more people came. And the numbers, in my case, were just kind of staggering to me. I mean, it really was. And that was, and then the other thing that happened, for example, was 2009 with the Iranian revolution, when suddenly we also realized that we could plug into somewhere completely different. And if we agree with them, believe in them, then we, we, we I remember, you remember we, we went green and we, we took all the tweets from Iran and we covered that revolution day in, day out before CNN, all the, before cable, we used to call it going cable in those days. That's what cable used to do. And then eventually yeah. the newspapers started doing it too. So that changed too. You could do things immediately. But we were at the same time, and I'll shut up for a second, but, but we were getting into that addictiveness. We were getting into the need for something fresh, or we were bored or restless. And we were getting addicted to the audience and its potency. And we were also, I was personally just slowly turning my brain into mush because there's just only so much of that stuff you can do without exhausting and destroying yourself. When did you first feel that you were maybe producing something that was addictive? Probably, you know, I, I do remember my kid taking my Blackberry and throwing it in the toilet at one point and my thinking like, okay, like I gotta start drawing some lines. I mean, it's really, with my, not that I necessarily did such a good job of, of fixing my poor behavior, but I definitely was just in feeling attention between my kids and, and the story. You know, the story, and for me, it was like tips coming in all the time too. And so like, and you know, I was sort of wedded to scores. And, and part of the reason that I got them was because sources knew I was online all the time. and could turn them around really fast and wouldn't be talked out of throwing a punch and didn't really care if it pissed people off and sort of but then again, you're sort of giving sources this signal, which I continue to try to give sources that like, I, you know, I'll write the story. But the, but the, but again, you're sort of, it's another kind of communication where it sort of requires you to sort of give good service to, at least in terms of a speedy reply, even if it's like, hey, no, I'm not doing that to people who are coming in at you all the time. Yeah, it's almost, it, sometimes it feels, it felt like, like trading, like you're in a kind of information trading environment. Like I think I look at sort of people hooked to their Bloomberg terminals, think that there's sort of something a little like that. But also for me, the most satisfying parts, as for you, were when people who just read you knew what you were interested in, had a sense of like your worldview, would just come to you with stuff, be not because they had some transactional interest, but because they just kind of knew that this was something that would be interesting. I mean, one of my favorite stories, I did a Politico Obama had had a, this kid who lost you, who'd been reading me forever, it was just a political jockey, had gone to an Obama rally with his sister and a couple of her friends in Michigan. And he was like this, you know, nice looking guy wearing a suit. And one of the organizers of the rally said, hey, would you sit up on that, that big stand behind the candidate, the riser, I guess, so that you'll be in the shop looking like a fresh-faced young professional person supporting the president, you know, the candidate. And he's like, cool, yeah, I'd love to, and waves his sister along, and his sister's wearing a headscarf. And the person is like, oh, never mind, we're not doing that. And then his sister's friend was like, yeah, I had the same experience, actually. And 
you know, and, and it was not, no one had any motive here. It was just like a fucked up thing that had happened to him. And, you know, I called the campaign, I called the Council on American Islamic Relations. I reported it out and it turned out, yeah, they had a sort of some maybe mid-level, but there was an unspoken policy that you did not want Obama in pictures with Muslims. Because at that point, the sort of line was that he's a secret Muslim. And Obama wound up calling this kid and apologizing, among other things. But it felt like, you know what, like, I guess what I liked about it was really was just that this person kind of knew me well enough to know I'd write that story. And yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, they do get to know you. And what's it all? They also know your weaknesses and how to get yeah, to of you. Course. Um, and you figured out the marriage thing would get to me and bingo, you were correct. Right, totally, uh, totally. And the same with Obama, actually. I mean, that was the so other thing that happened with the Trump. Yeah, sorry, go on. No, I, I, mean, I, I, I mean, I think more that you radicalized me on marriage, but anyway. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. But also, yes. Yes. <laughs> the Obama thing, too, though, I mean, I remember feeling at the dish back in the day, suddenly this became also felt different. It suddenly felt different. It felt as if the blog was almost, almost part, the leading edge of this campaign for a while. Because we were very much ahead of it in the uh, before, before, and so on. And I hated everyone knew I hated Hillary. And so there was this, and I was, of course, a right winger in many respects and still am. So that was kind of weird. But then it just felt like we had created the space early for where Obama supporters could congregate and did congregate. And that year, the campaign was just staggering in terms of w working as a writer, just having so many people uh, over your but shoulder. And then, of course, with the Palin stuff, it just then it went through the fucking stratosphere until we all came crashing down in December. So it was a really exhilarating year, but at the yeah, same time, yeah, go on. Let's say, but go back to Obama. I mean, I think, like, it, there was something about old-fashioned print media that had just lost its reality. There was, a, you know, it just wasn't real to people. Like, it wasn't, you, I could feel covering that campaign. That every, you know, the campaign, people who work on campaigns are mostly sort of mechanics and operatives. And are looking for a narrative or sort of in search of a narrative that can get people to vote for their candidate. They're not necessarily ideologues and, you know, philosophers. And, you know, Obama was some of both. But you actually, like I could tell they were reading your blog and they would say things about their own and about Obama's raison d'etre that had clearly come from you. And that was a kind of influence that, you know, maybe a really fancy newspaper column that says once in a while. But the, there was like, but the, the the old media had lost its authentic connection with the people reading it, including the very central, powerful people reading it, and you could just feel the way in which influence was flowing. I'm sure that was incredibly addicting too. It was, and it also probably led to my being more bonded to that guy than as a political journalist I should have been. But uh, but it also came out of an experience. But what happened then over time is that as readers went through these events with you and carried on with you, you be it became this sort of close relationship. And that's why when I broke it off in 2015, I mean, the, I could show you the emails. It, I just felt like I had suddenly walked out on a, 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 a spouse. It was, it, was, it was such a strange thing. I had no choice at the time, but it was, and it was absolutely, and to be honest with you, it was so upsetting emotionally to get all that, just overwhelming. But I couldn't read them. I just couldn't read them. I was exhausted. But the intensity of the relationship, unlike anything else, any I think journalists had probably had 
maybe as I say, a few, a few of them, uh, it, people who have weekly columns and people love those columns, written them for years, they definitely get a, a passionate, but there's something about the immediacy of that that works. Now let's talk a little bit about the two people, to get back to your book in a way, the, say, the publishing things that other people won't, which was one of the key attractions of, of, of this. What Mickey would call the under news, if you remember, the, the stuff that people were yeah. talking about that didn't get in, but all the journalists were talking about, that kind of breaking that down. And that felt exhilarating too. On the other hand, it also, of course, allow things to get out there that really in the in the end one it, one one might feel shitty about like the outing of various characters like with gawker it was essentially at some point just the outing of a completely regular person not really even a public figure just because you could and i think it was then that nick denton who's our mutual friends who i was kind of tough on in my book in the review but but he's a i i like him as a friend and i think he's he's also He's changed a lot. He came to some pretty major epiphanies during all of this and realized, no, I don't want to be that shitty. I want to be 20% nicer. And so I, th I think in some ways that was something. And then, of course, when you want to come to the big one, it was the Steel Dossier for you, which was something that probably previously would never have been published in that way in a major newspaper, right? Yeah. And, and just to go back, I mean, I did decided to write about Nick Denton, who founded Gawker and, and Jonah Pretty wrote BuzzFeed Buzz, because they did, they were very ideological. Like not everybody was. And it's funny, just hearing you talk, it does feel like we're talking about this very weird, rarefied experience of bloggers in the 2005 to 15 era. But actually that's how everybody suddenly felt on Twitter. It occurs to me, right? Like we had this super weird, disturbing, addictive, ex amazing experience that suddenly became a mass experience. It's, it's yes. one of the ways of talking about what the hell just yes. happened to everybody. But yes. to go, but, but just to go back, the yeah, because I I wrote about that because there were a lot of a lot of people floating around that kind of new media, you know, company building, invest, you know, money flowing in space in the early aughts. But they were both very ideological, which is what made them so interesting. Like Nick really had this idea about the internet and about and social media that it would you know, it would strip away the hypocrisy and the sort of cant and the woodenness of particularly American media. He'd come from much like livelier and more savage British media. And, you know, this was right after the American media had just massively screwed up the Iraq war coverage and was totally out of touch with the way people actually communicated on the internet. And I actually think in a way, like the, be you know, the, the best version of Gawker was the site Jezebel in 2007, which they launched with like a very pure version of this. They offered a $10,000 bounty for somebody who could find an unretouched version of a photograph from a fashion magazine. And sure enough, somebody like, you know, turned up with a photo of Faith Hill still having smile lines and freckles. And also then, you know, did a bunch of, you know, what is now very recognizable sort of online social justice campaigning around, you know, all the models were white and they just started counting black models. And, and, and that shamed these fashion magazines to having more diverse models. They talked about women's lives in a way that was like much realer than the nonsense in women's magazines. And it was incredibly powerful for them, for their audience, but also in a way that I think they didn't expect at all, like unleash this incredibly intense connection with an audience who felt like they owned them. When they deviated from the party line, they would be attacked very personally and intensely by their own readers. And they really wound up in this kind of, you know, they couple of got drunk and made, you know, really dumb jokes on stage at an event and wound up getting kind of canceled by their own readers in this way that they kind of lived 
that whole cycle that becomes totally familiar, both of like the incredible and I think basically constructive power of these social platforms and their incredible destructive power. But and like, it was all there in those days. I mean, I hadn't followed that story at all at the time. And so it was kind of fascinating to realize that it had just been there. Yes, that was a, that was a, a sort of little arc within an arc. And it feels like everyone yeah. involved in this went through that arc in some kind of way. And you're right. You know, the, the story that we're talking about with the early bloggers became when everybody had a Facebook page. So everybody had their own blog, essentially. Then you not just you don't just have this exponential audience. You have an exponential production class as well. And and the noise just keeps rising and rising. And and the, the, the and and the and the ability for any quiet or calmer perspective just begins to disappear. And when I look back and I think, let's, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, I, I try to do my best to figure out what was happening at the time, fully knowing that we're making this shit up as we go along. So this is brand new. We don't know. We're going we, to try this stuff out, and we'll see what happens. So I'm, I'm not really, I don't hope, I don't want to be censorious about some of the shit we many of us got wrong, or for example, some of the worst aspects of Gorka culture, or even, although maybe I would make an exception for this, the, 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 the Peretti model of fusing advertising with editorial in an upbeat kind of, you know, up with humans kind of way that just so blurred what I could understood as commercial and editorial stuff. That I was, as you remember, I was just like aghast at this. But you could see why this medium facilitated that. And it was one of the things you could try out. I didn't. So I, I, I think these things probably would have all have happened in some way or other. It's just the cast of characters was just serendipitously from that point in contingent history. But these things would have had yeah. to happen at some point, I think. Someone would have gone yeah, too far with it. the gossip. Someone would have tried to go too viral and wreck their integrity. But eventually, we would have to figure out some kind of middle way. Or just really alienate everyone from the whole system, maybe. But yeah, no, I agree. I mean, right, to finish the Nick story, in a way, this ideology of kind of just tell, you know, say the thing that you wouldn't say, give people what they really want, not what they pretend to want, led in a sort of straight line to publishing sex tapes without people's permission before the yeah. phrase like revenge, revenge porn was in the vernacular. and. You know, they were actually the victims of a conspiracy by a billionaire, Peter Thiel, to destroy them. But the tool he used was this sex tape that, you know, it's funny to think that in 2012, there was any debate that publishing a sex tape could be acceptable. Even by 2015, when they started to get into this legal process, it's like nobody thinks that's okay. And, and in some ways, they were victims of these evolving mores a little bit, but yeah, but I think there's a kind, right, and the sort of exposure for the sake of exposure and the sort of ideology of, you know, that in some ways Mark Zuckerberg shared, right, of there shouldn't be secrets, people shouldn't have private lives. Yes, and but of course, if if there is no privacy, you, there's no liberal society. There could be, we, because we're humans, and because yeah, then common that, standards collapse, and you have, we have seen that, right? I want to, I want to talk yeah, about this. No, I think if yeah, you look at okay. I mean, if you look at sort of the use of sex tapes now, one of their uses is by authoritarians to humiliate their opponents. I of mean, course. There's that, what's her name in, in Azerbaijan? There's a dissident who gets, and that was one of the ways they cracked a dissident journalist. That's one of the things they did to her. And I think it's like, yeah. Well, that's why I found as a gay man, Nick's complete indifference to the question of 
sexual privacy to be kind of abhorrent because, and the way he treated other gay men, because gay men in particular, historically, have been destroyed this way in, in really ugly ways. And it was routine, in fact. And the kind of level of fear, just collective fear of exposure and guilt that you can, if you read Jamie Kirchhoff's book on the Lavender Scare or the Fifth and Sixth and Seventh, just that you as a gay man would start deploying that stuff in the, in the 2018, I just thought you have no, you don't see the broad perspective of this or the dangers of this or the way in which these tools can be used by people you don't know or like. And so therefore there is a real, there is a real line here that you don't want to cross. And, uh, and I yeah. don't think at this point we disagree with that, right? I don't think Nick now. No, and I think part of it was that it's, there's, there's a feeling in the beginning of the internet that we were these outsiders throwing spitballs at powerful people and powerful institutions. And, the, and then, then, you know, the decade goes on and those institutions get a lot less powerful. These voices of the internet get a lot more powerful. And suddenly, Gawker is essentially bullying some poor random person at a declining magazine company. And, you know, and the sort of polarity shift, not that outing was ever okay, but it's the polar, you know, also there was this question of who had the power that shifted. Right. And then there was also the question as the power began to, to move towards those of us who uh, thought of ourselves as powerless in a way, or just having fun over on the outside. Right. And the things that we had used to just being talking about, which would not be talked about as we got bigger and as events happened. And for me, of course, it was the Palin story. It's like, fuck, everyone's talking about this. I don't see any reason what, well, and I, but so I, and if you remember when I actually just decided to stop blogging for 24 hours, because I literally didn't know what to do. Because I was thinking one thing, everyone's doing my own thing, and I had never not on my blog just aired what I was thinking. And suddenly I was like, right. shit, I better not do this because this is crazy. And, and so it was just this, anyway, it was, it was agonizing. But again, because what you might have gotten away with if you were just a minor person saying, I don't, where's this? Where's the evidence of this? Why did where why we see any photos of her pregnant or, or what's her story is completely insane. Be fine, but suddenly uh, Yeah, it's one thing to be a random irresponsible lunatic and another to be a powerful irresponsible lunatic, <laughs> yes. I suppose. I mean that well, and you had I, sort of gone from one to the other. Yeah. Well I know in that particular just, case. Let me let me just let me just <laughs> in your own defense. Sorry. It, it, it just sustained my book. There was nothing lunatic about questioning Sarah Palin's crazy stories. And and subjecting them to rigorous empirical scrutiny, which the press did not, and and or, or didn't do in the public eye, right? In the, I mean, that was part of it. And and the way, and I think this is a very hard question. I mean, so the Tara Reid story was sort of reasons as to this. Like, there's something that a lot of people know about when should you do your journalism in public, and when should you try to work away in private and reach your conclusions. I don't have a particularly satisfactory answer on that, but it is a but the trouble with question. the era of immediate round-the-clock blocking is that you don't get that time. You don't get that space. Right. And if you don't publish, the question then becomes, why are you not publishing? There was this, Yeah, and you, this, and you have an audience who's talking to you who kind of actually, as I did at the time, thought, oh, my God, Andrew has totally lost it here. But I kind of know where he's coming from and, I forget, and, and get what his perspective is. But then there's a lot of other people who are not your audience, who just who who, right. who you're then dealing with it on the national political stage. Well, I'm way. just talking about 
the evolution of this stuff and, and the collision. Yeah, no, no, me too. And I thought that a lot. Yeah, I did too. The the steel dossier, just to, I'm just now here you have this document that obviously is being talked about and obviously it's talk about, I mean, every street. Hi there. Every, this is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you too for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Substack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And you also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday. Not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dish cast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. AndrewSullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.